Hello and welcome to episode 416 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 24th of April 2023 and joining me tonight is me, Chris Thurston, and also <laughs> joining me tonight is Marsh Davies. Hello, that's me, not you. I fucked that up real bad. <laughs> Not going to lie, Marsh, I thought about saying, why don't we start this recording again? We're only 37 seconds in. I think you've styled it out. Did I? You've, you've pulled it back, yeah. Your, your sheer panache <sighs> has rescued it. Wow, it's like I only do four of these a year or something. <laughs> Incredible. Uh... Well, uh, it's, nice to, it's nice to hear your voice again. Uh, it's nice to be back. Hi, Marsh. Congratulations, hey, I should say, Marsh, on the success of your, your teeth. Thank you. My teeth are looking well enameled. 404% enameled at the time of recording. That's exciting. Uh, this is the role-playing game that I uh, egregiously plugged in uh, a standalone episode. Sorry about that. I did feel well, bad doing that, but at the same time, um, I like money and um, I want it. Are you feeling Are you feeling sated by this level of success or do your hunger is ever for more? Will you ever be satisfied? I will never be satisfied, Chris. Um mm. No, it's it's been incredibly gratifying. I mean, it's less about the 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 numbers. It's really the reception of it that has been pleasing. Like it's it's nice to have something I've made finally out there in the world, and people are looking at it and saying nice things about it. And that hasn't happened for a long time. So it's good. It's good to have something. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, yeah, I'm I'm just very pleased. I'm looking forward to seeing it in person. Having heard you know obviously so much over the last couple of years, and yeah. What a nice thing. It's always nice to see a friend doing well. Thanks, man. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was fucking awesome, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Shall we talk about roaming around a big fathomless ocean hoping to find something of value? Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I have been playing, as I believe you have also, uh, a game called Dredge. Mm. A game Ooh. about fishing and oceanic or perhaps celestial terror yeah it's like an open world kind of quite cute cartoon fishing game um with a a sort of top-down aspect you're you're trawling around doing other fishing verbs crabbing potting pottering netting uh hauling up fish playing a bit of fish inventory tetris taking them back to port selling them upgrading your boat and so on but all of this is layered on top of a kind of uh spooky cosmic horror mystery with uh big big ocean willy energy <laughs> you know oh yes real ocean william if you know what i'm saying <laughs> he's out there <laughs> he's out there he's out there and on a lonely night perhaps you will see him in the distance or what you think is him but is it is it or is it simply a mirage a a consequence of your own deteriorating sanity as Ocean William draws ever closer. These are the questions <laughs> raised by Dredge. How are you finding it? Uh, you know, I've struggled. Oh, sorry, actually, somebody's knocking at my front door. I've got to go. And there he is. Ocean William has arrived. Claimed another victim. And it falls to me to conduct the rest of this podcast by myself. I've done this on one prior occasion when I was much more practiced in the art, if I'm being honest. And I don't really have much to tell you, friend, other than I hope Marsh returns and returns soon. When? When will my husband return from the war? He said, staring out to the ocean. 
my my husband, Ocean William, I guess, in this bit that I'm still doing, just talking to myself. Hmm. So uh, Dredge, it's pretty good. I've played, uh, don't tell Marsh this, I've played about two hours and 13 minutes of it. I don't know why it's important that you don't tell Marsh that. In hindsight, I don't think you judge me for that. Certainly we've talked at length on about games that we've played for far less uh, time on this podcast while forming entirely um, specious opinions. But in this case, I feel like I am barely both scratching its surface. Maybe I've discovered all of its depth. I don't know yet because I don't know how deep it is or how broad its surface might be. I can hear him in the distance, perhaps returning. And I don't know if that is truly uh, that he has arrived or not. I mean, the person at the door, what it could be, it's mid-afternoon for Marsh right now. It could be the Amazon man um, with his latest reserve of whatever filthy magazine he's into at the moment, God knows, or just a, a big pack of crayons. Um, or it could be, I don't know, uh, a, a neighbor uh, in need of help. They shan't have any, not from Marsh, I'll tell you that. I used to live with the man. A frightful time of my life. Uh, but this podcast, I suppose, benefited from a time where we could uh, simply wander from uh, into one room, set up a microphone or two, and talk total bollocks um, for a great couple of hours. It's funny, isn't it? Thinking all the way back to 2014, just dredging that up, to, you know, segue back to the game uh, from the mists of time, thinking about who we were back then. Uh, I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before, but Marsh would sometimes draw little goblins with their dicks out and hide them around the house for me. I'm sure I've told that story before. But I was thinking about that fondly the other day, uh, fondly for about 15 seconds, and then back to just sort of wondering what it will feel like when I start to understand any aspect of my life. I really hope Marsh comes back soon. Anyway... Dredge, yeah. Um, it's a fishing game. It's pretty good. I like the little mini games you play. Probably I'll say that to Marsh as well in a minute. There's something nice and sort of pleasant about the repetitive action of fishing in any given game, I think. And it's interesting why fishing is such an attractor for that sort of gameplay. In fact, it can be pleasant to just press a button on a prompt. On you know, Like golf games. Golf games have a similar thing, I suppose. And golf and fishing are an equivalent arm movements. So maybe the fact that it's our... Are they? I don't do either. But I'm going to say that with a relative certainty, knowing that no one can judge me for saying otherwise. Was that Marsh okay. coming back? Hello, Marsh is back. <laughs> Hello. Is it going to be hard for me to isolate the silence? There is no silence, Marsh. I just oh, talked for about six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't six minutes. It was closer to four, I think, but it well, felt like six. That will be a little treat for me later. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, a man wanted to come and fix our door at an inconvenient time. Hang on. So hang on. Back up. Your door was broken. Um. Yes. Uh, on, uh, on what did he knock? Uh, the door the door functions in terms of knocking. It doesn't function in terms of sealing is the problem. Oh, I see. So why did he need to knock? Why couldn't he just burst on in? <laughs> he's he's not the size of a centipede, <laughs> would be the answer. What, they, what? they have free ingress, but uh, human-sized uh, oh, entrants don't uh, have what? a little bit more difficulty. How is it that every place you live in has its own like unique new vermin. I know it's it's my particular allure, I think. I was I was just telling the void about dredge. Um <laughs> if you'd like to pick that up. Oh yeah. Um what was the question you asked me? It's what I thought of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I asked, <laughs> uh, you asked how you thought about it and then you left. 
Um, but um, presumably you like it a little bit more than that, or not. Yeah, I, I was struggling to work out how, what I felt about it, really, because in some ways I find like the, like the central rigmarole of it I don't like, actually. And yet the kind of the jest out of it, I find quite appealing. I don't know. I, I feel like a game about fishing should have a more interesting central fishing activity, whereas mm. it's a really boring rhythm action minigame in this. And like, I, I was comparing it to other games where there is there they create, um, there's a lot of delayed gratification in, in Dredge in that it seems to fall into the current trend of game design or at least convention where there is an upgrade system which paces your journey through this otherwise open environment uh i don't I don't object to that in any way but I, I feel like if you create all of this space which is going to be filled with like a repetitive central activity then that's repetitive central activity needs to be itself very gratifying i didn't find it fun at all mm. but then i do quite like everything around it <laughs> <laughs> to quite a high degree you know i i think i think that the sh the way the world has been described and the the threat of night time the way that that is enacted just the idea of time itself the way that that works in the game i think is really interesting mm. i'm sorry i burped at the same time <laughs> saying that <laughs> <laughs> but you know what rises from the deep Wow. <laughs> <laughs> just bubbled up and out of me um so yeah like <laughs> so when nighttime falls you are prone to going slightly mad the, the fog rolls in there's all this kind of groaning and splashing in the dark because you putter desperately for home you could be attacked by certain things at the at night so it gives you like a time limit during the day you know in which to achieve your activities and relative mm. safety um and the way that that works is that time stops when you aren't moving. And so it, the time limit also ties to your boat speed and thus the distance you can travel. Um, and if you perform a task like fishing, it advances time. But otherwise, if you just stop dead in the water, you can spend all the time you like mucking around in your inventory, uh, planning, looking at maps and so on. Um, and I think, I, think this is, this, I think this is true. Maybe you'll know. Um, but I think if you get more powerful engines... That means that time advances slower when you are moving. So it allows you to move those greater distances without the game actually having to model like a ludicrous differential between your starting ship's speed and an upgraded one. Hmm. I'm not sure I'd noticed that, that exactly, but I now have a significantly faster ship than I did when I started playing the game. And I have noticed that I get a lot more done in yeah. a given span of time so a day seems yeah. to last much longer the further mm. you are you're into the game and i think that's a really clever and neat way um i also think it's interesting that time doesn't apply to fish <laughs> like, famously like if a big bad fish is coming for you it doesn't care that you are still it doesn't care that you're not technically advancing time um you just have to get out of there um and that kind of feels right, given the kind of celestial horror aspect. Like it's, it's a fish beyond time and space. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's interesting. Like I think so. I've only I confessed to this while you were gone, but um, I have I've played maybe like two and a bit hours of it, two hours and three minutes or whatever it is. I said earlier is probably still true because I haven't played any since you know then, obviously. Um, and I am I know exactly what you mean in that I'm starting to actually for what it's worth quite like the rote activities of fishing. Um. 
uh, might be compelled in another timeline to go off on one about whether or not little very simple rhythm games are kind of just a fun activity in and of themselves. I agree with you that it's not as compelling as it could be, but I do mm-hmm. find that little orbit of go, mash button, find thing, go back, spend, sell thing, find special thing, you know, upgrade, you know, meander through tech tree, upgrading things is sort of like basically satisfying to me you know what i mean it's a sort of yeah but it's it's basically satisfying i think it's not much more than that and i think uh i mean i i I agree with you that 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 kind of sustained me for the first couple of hours because i'm still learning about the world and stuff but then the more that that was asked of me the less into it i was i think over time Mm. there's there's another can i just go on another weird little tangent about the time the way that time yeah yeah so there's another system that doesn't abide by the time rules and it kind of works in the opposite direction of the way the simulation's intended so you get this i'm i don't know i can't remember exactly how it started it's like a nitro boost or something it speeds up your boat when you press a button Sure. Um, but it threatens to overheat. So you know, this mm. little bar fills up with heat. And so you can, and it, you know, you'll damage your ship if you let it go. So you can only use it in these short bursts, which is fine. It kind of adds this kind of little kind of mechanical frisson to long journeys. But, um, but weirdly, its cooldown exists in real player time, not in in-game time. Mm. So <laughs> to explain, the effect of that is that uh, in order to be maximally efficient, and do as much as you can in the time of day that you have within the game, you have to burn this afterburner, whatever it is, then stop dead uh, to stop in-game time and wait for the cooldown to occur in real time. So the end is that you create this really odd cadence to travel where you're you're kind of going as fast as you can, then you're stopping for like 10 seconds, (laughs) completely still, uh, and then starting again. Um, Which, I mean, I'm... You know, I'm sure that's not the fantasy they had in mind. And I know I should just resist that and simply pootle along regardless of how efficient it is in, in terms of advancing game time. But you know how it is. Like if there's a tiny mechanical incentive for me to completely ruin my own experience, then I will absolutely do that. Right. Yeah, I think I think I, I so I hadn't that hadn't occurred to me. Like I hardly use that ability. Um, I use it for when there is a pedal. But oh, not really? at other times, yeah. Not, at, I mean, I don't find it very much more efficient to just go because boat go fast anyway. Hmm. Um, but I have found that even in that first couple of hours, so you know, I kind of the nature of the sort of one thing I like about it, it has this sort of you know, until you get to the kind of the nighttime and some of the spookier stuff and the eerier writing and and, and so on, it sort of unfolds that aspect of itself quite slowly. You know, and I think I really like it. I like the art. I like the, I really like the sound design, actually, particularly um, mm. the way it indicates like the potential presence of things at night. And I like the way it kind of introduces new UI elements or other things to kind of unsettle you. And I'm still excited to see more of that happen. But I do think that I, I do agree with you that I think there is a a slight tension between the game at its various levels as a horror game. And I'm going to dig into that a little bit. And when you start talking about seeking mechanical advantage and things, um, that comes into it for me. So so one thing that I have kind of determined is, you know, one thing I like about it, for example, like I think I think you could make exactly this game much more, look much less pleasant to play by introducing things like, I don't know, fuel or upkeep for the boat. There is sort of upkeep for the boat in terms of taking damage and needing to fish to buy repairs and stuff. But most of the time, 
you're not, for example, sinking your resources into upkeep costs, which is a common, you know, it's a common way to burn your time in any sort of, you know, crafting game, basically, mm. uh, which is functionally what this is. Um, it doesn't really do that. Almost all of your, in, in a quite a positive sense, almost everything you do is kind of making your life easier one way or another. And then that is sort of exists in tension with the fact that many of the things you're doing are spooky or are kind of like of questionable impact on you, you know, like the, you know, even the, the, that nitro boost power is, you know, the, the, one of the reasons you shouldn't burn it is it increases your panic because it is sort of otherworldly in some way and so on. And, you know, there is this sort of um, tension that the game is being held in between you making these, like the, the positive fun of a fishing game, like the acquisitive, you know, the acquisitive crafting kind of building out your boat, improving your boat and so on. And little things like the satisfaction of inventory Tetris and doing that well, you know, of kind of planning the layout of the upgrades on your boat versus spare, um, spare space for fish. There's a whole game in that, right? And it's a very common kind of experience. Um, and I think the novelty of Dredge is the way that that's married to a horror experience. Um, in the same way that um, something like um, Inscription grows out from being a card game, right, into something else. I don't think this goes quite that far um in, in terms of becoming something else but there is a point where you're playing a fishing game and something closer to like a sort of open world investigation slash survival horror game but you're a trawler right this is not to kind of you know um that's not to sort of um you know uh spoil anything really uh, i think that's a fair assessment and what I found where I'm getting to, like I, I've, you know, I'm, I'm past the first area now and, and into different sort of location and so on, is that um, I'm, I'm compelled by the narrative and I'm compelled by the locations. I love an ocean mystery. I love an ocean willy, as has been as has been um, said many times in this podcast. And I think you know, there's I, I, I want to unpick a bit more of its mythos. I want to find out what's going on and so on, um, but. I, I've now found that my rhythm of playing the game has changed quite a bit from fish and in the course of fishing, find something strange, investigate that back to fishing, upgrade the boat to try and do the thing I think I want to do in the environment um, and maybe get some fish on the way. Um, but mostly like uh, do that until the point where I kind of need to maybe stock up on some money for repairs or new upgrades and things like that. Then mm. back to fishing for that purpose and then back to almost being drawn into like brute forcing some of those encounters or sort of little set piece environments and things with my slightly more souped up trawler and i think because it's sort of not really stopping me from sort of uh playing the mechanics as you put it that's slightly to the detriment of the atmosphere. And I, th I think I, just from a design point of view, I find that really interesting tension, right? Like how, how do you incentivize players to play in the most atmospheric way in a game that is also fundamentally about efficiency and, and openly so, right? Like it is, it is openly a game about efficiency, right? And, mm. and every, in every, every play, in every meaningful system it presents to you. And I just think that's it. It's an interesting conundrum, but I do think it's a success atmospherically for the most part. Yeah, I agree. I think frustration with the efficiency stuff isn't that it's isn't that it's about that. It's it's that it it's so explicitly gate stuff with that. 
yeah. uh, by limiting your efficiency. I was going to say artificially, but that, that's not quite right, is it? I, I don't object to a game sort of like parceling out bits of content or blocking them off uh, or delaying you from getting to them. But I, I feel like it's more satisfying when that bottleneck is decided by my ability to enjoy those things. Like if, if a bit of content is given to me too quickly, then I might mm. not have spent enough time with the preceding piece of content to have explored it properly or understand it properly. And so that I like it when that the pacing is down to the player rather than um, down to some comp- nakedly designed sense of pacing, <laughs> you know, that is being right. projected onto me. Um, I, I suppose I, I, I object to that purely because like you say, there is, it pulls me away from the other thing that the game is trying to achieve, which is this atmosphere. And there's this sense of questions that need to be answered. And if I'm not able to answer those questions because my beat, you know, my boat only goes at X speed and I will need to get, you know, 10 crabs in order to <laughs> get to somewhere. That's not, that's not a kind of interesting problem. It's not a sufficiently interesting problem to, to delay my ability to answer that question. Yeah. I think. But then again, you know, the mutated fish art is superb. Like there's some really grotesquely mutated fish. The character design in this game is absolutely superb. Just amazing. Um, I'm not quite sure even how to describe the style in which it's done. The very explicit sort of daub-like strokes that make up the kind of the texture of these portraits but each stroke is incredibly sharply accentuated like it's almost completely created out of rhombuses <laughs> um <laughs> it's a really interesting style because it's it's both kind of extremely um overtly painterly but in a way which could only ever be achieved digitally uh, and that's mm. that's really interesting uh and the, the, the you know some of the just the caricatures are, are fantastic like the fishmonger is just the, the the most unseemly fishmonger you can imagine like that guy has an unhealthy relationship with his work <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that is um and i think that is high praise coming from a, a man who as far as anyone can tell now generates unseemly fishmongers <laughs> for a living um you know I, I i trust you implicitly in this regard um master of the explicit stroke anything um <laughs> what do you feel about the the whole uh it's sort of lovecraftian pose do you feel like that it has it's achieving that with any kind of depth or nuance or novelty i, th- I think uh so i feel like i want to kind of let it tell its story before i kind of deliver right. a final final verdict on that i'm finding it's interesting really i'm finding like we are not wanting for stories like this at the moment, right? Like, I mean, let's be honest, we're not even wanting for top-down perspective or like isometric perspective games where you control a little boat in a cosmic horror setting, right? Like, mm. you know, some of the seas also exists, some of the skies yeah. also exists, and those games are comparable to this. Um, you know, and I think there's... Um, and it, well, I think that those games, the some of those games are the most pertinent comparison. Those are much bigger games in terms of scale and depth of the writing and they're much more you know they're much more you know they they are interactive fiction games with the kind of open world exploration resource element built on top um this is a a, i think a a tighter and more interesting resource game more intentional resource game but less deep on the other side but they could remixes some similar elements and i think um 
Um, but similarly, you know, we're not exactly, um, we're not exactly wanting for like lonely fishing village experiences in this medium at the moment, right? There's sort of, it is, there's a kind of a wealth of this. And I think, um, I'm trying, like, I think for me, um, success in this regard is, is always a matter of presentation and surprise, I think, and like slow revelation. And so I think some of the things that you're kind of discussing in terms of like its pacing are key to its success and failure as a, um, as like a Lovecraft game of some kind, like the, because so for me, the bits that have been the most successful are like the slow reveal of some of those mutated fish or the little touches of the, particularly at night and the one like wondering what's out there in the fog, for example, honestly, like, one of its nicest touches is when you're pootling along at night as your panic increases, sometimes rocks just materialize in front of you out of nowhere. Mm. And it creates, and the combination of VFX, fog of war, the way it does it, creates this incredibly convincing effect that you have simply failed to see it in time, even though I'm pretty sure the game is generating them in front of you, which is really nice and very clever and very subtle and just create that feeling of like you're being, you're being slightly out of control. I think... As ever with these kinds of games, the uh, I don't want to kind of spoil too much necessarily, but like the real threats, I think, are quickly understood in some ways. Um, or once you start to pass them, you can sort of start to avoid them. And I think at that territory, we return to game territory from that brief moment of the unknown, because like fear of the unknown is the whole point. Mm. And if I were to make some, you know. I'm really to tie a bow on all of this because because ultimately, if you're talking about stories about lonely fishing villages, sea mysteries, scary monsters, um, cults, you know, iconography, ancient ruins, etc., all of that stuff, there's a lot of it around. And for me, like for it to really work, the atmosphere really needs to be solid. And I think Dredge gets there quite a bit. In a way, in a way, I almost wish the horror element wasn't like a back of the box feature, but more of a surprise. Because one thing that occurred to me is the other game that it sort of superficially resembles, sort of, is got the kind of like, well, actually not at all. No, it doesn't resemble it. I'm thinking this because at the beginning of the game, a mayor says you're in debt to the town, you need to pay off your debt before you do anything else. And that made me think of Animal Crossing. And Animal Crossing would be an incredible game to really just release a slow burn horror element into. <laughs> yeah. It would be, right? Yeah. Like, and so because that sort of slow reveal of something being uncanny or off, I think can be really powerful. And I think this game achieves that. The one, the other ones that I would compare it to, um, you know, so I've obviously mentioned the Sunless games, which are also explicitly sort of um, cosmic horror uh, settings. Um, Obra Dinn would be the other one, just in terms of like nautical horror, interesting nautical horror mm. and kind of processing it. And Obra Dinn, I would say, is more successful because of the way it slowly kind of reveals its strangenesses, you know? Yeah. Um, also, more recently, because another game I have been playing is um, Case of the Golden Idol, which is much sillier and lighter in some ways, but also kind of just lets its little vignettes um, sit you know, to let them kind of stand as little horror moments. Like, why is that man spontaneously combusted? I don't know. Let's do a word <laughs> search. Um, and I find that um, gameplay, logic, game mechanics, problem solving, all of that 
is the enemy of this kind of horror and always has been and always will be. Um, and so um, there's a really interesting juxtaposition between the logic control, the things people come to a fishing game for, the mm. logical kind of rational systems and the kind of mercantile pursuit of it versus the kind of unfathomable. I Where I'm at so far is I'm really enjoying it and I think it's really interesting and I want to solve its puzzles and complete it. But I, I feel like it's becoming quite fathomable quite quickly. And that means that I've slipped into a different... Exactly. It's a sea pun. It was. A, it, was a, it was an ocean bant. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, uh, and as a consequence, it's becoming more like a atmospheric adventure game rather than like a meaningful inter- interface with that kind of horror, if that makes sense. I appreciate that was yeah. a big old... I just had a big explicit stroke of my own. Um, <laughs> trying to articulate how I feel about that, but like I've got strong feelings about that kind of horror. But also, I think that like most things are bad at capturing them. It's just just the case that you know these kinds of games or games generally sometimes have a decent shot at it, but not always. You know, I don't know how are you finding it in that regard. Like I said, I, I, at the outset, I, I find the kind of the, the totality of it quite um beguiling and i think i will play it to completion i i'm about two-thirds of the way through it now and i will i will finish it but um yeah there's there's something awkward in its uh combination actually i tell you what the game that it made me think of which is uh you know dissimilar from it in mechanism almost entirely is strange horticulture hmm. in that that is that's a game with a sort of mercantile overlayer with an uncanny story threaded through and a central activity which is orthogonal to that um, discovery. Um, and yet I found that a lot more kind of coherent, um, in the way that it operated possibly because the central activity itself, which is more of an information game, like you're identifying different plants in that using, you know, uh, a, a disparate array of tools to lock down certain facts and narrow in on a, um, a diagnosis. What's, what's the right word? Diagnosis <laughs> plant. Uh, <laughs> Um, um identification yeah yeah that's that's how words work um but that was a much more satisfactory and sort of intellectually engaging process and i don't think i'd want something that was necessarily cerebral injected into dredge as opposed to purely kind of uh you know mechanical i don't know what i'm wanting for really I, maybe i want a pure aesthetic game which is just about yeah. you know boating and really the 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 mechanical aspects of fishing don't or at least the, the the trading and the upgrading and all of that kind of frippery goes away and just gets subsumed by the 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 horror aesthetic you know the spooky traversal yeah. etc i'm thinking about like i agree with you I, I think there's a really interesting tension between these kinds of like very kind of like Full featured, well, full featured in this concept of fishing game, open world games, and horror specifically, or atmosphere. Because you're right that a kind of both a more aesthetic experience, but also something that leaves more to the imagination can sometimes be more powerful. Right, Oberdin's a good example of that. Mm. Um, but also, like I was just thinking, um, I had a run recently of seeing. Have you seen um, the movie Bait or the movie Ennis Main? I have not. Uh, two Mark Jenkin movies, both um, kind of. Uh, tonally relevant to this, given that Bait is about fishing and um, is is really fascinatingly made as a movie, and um, and Ennis Main is about a, just a lonely island, and both of them um, 
uh, sort of place a huge amount of weight on your own interpretive process, trying to figure out what genre you're in, really, mm. you know what I mean? And just so sort of taking in these landscapes and the, the effect of the sea on, on your brain and the kind of bait particularly, which I think is a great film. Um, I won't spoil anything about it, but um, I think if you liked The Lighthouse particularly, which I know a lot of people did, then you should mm. say it, you watch it. Um, um, invites you to speculate what kind of film it is. Um, pretty pretty consistently um and i won't answer that without spoiling it but there's there is it but but it does that because it exists primarily in your imagination like a lot of good horror films right like it, it, mm. it you know it lets you kind of sit with just vibes basically and sort of project onto you know that experience and fishing actually is a great match for that because it is a solitary ruminative pursuit right Mm. and um and this and dredge dredge's tension is slightly different dredge is actually ultimately quite a cute fishing game fishing is quick and fun um yeah i mean that's that's exactly it you've you've completely nailed it that that is my dissatisfaction with it because i feel like the 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 experience of being a lone fisherman on trawler is you know redolent with the uncanny Mm. uh you know the stink of the nets, the gulls, the, as your only friends, rocking yeah. about on this uh, empty ocean as fog rolls in and clattering of sheets against the mast, etc. All of that stuff could be incredibly powerful, combined with the existing kind of direction that the aesthetic's going in, and yet it it squanders all of that to make it this kind of incredibly trivial rhythm action game, and. That, that seems tragic. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't hate the the match game myself, really. Um, but I because I think it's sort of in keeping with what this game otherwise is. But I mm. agree with you. Like, I think it gestures at the existence of a different game, which is probably something more like a sort of slow burn VR fishing horror game, which I would one hundred percent play. Yeah. Right, where like you know you're you're gutting that weird card yourself. Um, but um, I think the other thing, the other tension is because because it's also a, you know, like it's a game with an economy and progress and stuff like that. The loss of your things matters, but in a kind of, in terms of inconvenience. And I think um, what I mean by that is like, let's say, for example, some sort of spooky ocean terror stole all your crabs, right? Like in in character terms the the real takeaway from that should be there was a spooky ocean terror in player terms the experience is i have lost all my crabs please my crabs are gone you know and what that means is i guess i'm gonna have to go get my crab pots repaired and then catch some more crabs yeah i mean like you will you will quick like and I think that's one of the one one of the other things I would raise. And I don't raise any of this because I'm actually really enjoying the game and I appreciate it's so negative so much just to kind of like explore some of the problems that these games encounter. One of them is what can you threaten the player with? And in a fishing game, it makes sense you can threaten them with the loss of their catch, right? Like that's that makes sense, or with the potentially dangerous slow crawl back to port if one of your engines gets damaged or something like that. That all makes sense. But all of that is effectively inconvenience and um, and, and you know, most horror games have this issue, but when that is the when that is the cost, you know, and that in different game that could be manifest as the inconvenience is being reset back to a checkpoint because you died, right? Doesn't really matter mm. what it is. It's just you've lost some of your time and you're gonna have to repeat something. 
And I think that also just as mechanism in games has the effect of eating away its ability to scare you past a certain point because you're like, okay, well, there's, and this is not a spoiler for Dredge, I'm going to say things that, well, to my experience, aren't my experience. Like, there's, oh, there's Cthulhu. I better go. Uh, I've got quite a rare crab, which is not <laughs> like, you know, that's not, that's not the desired outcome of that encounter from most storytelling perspectives. Mm. But it but, seems yeah. to have been a huge success with certain people. Um, I know Catherine at Rock Paper Shotgun absolutely loved it. And I read her review earlier and I, I you know, I can't fault it. Mm. <laughs> like she had a great time with it and it really, really worked for her. Um, yeah. I find it interesting because for me, it is both and not a great Steam Deck game, mm. which, and the reason I say that is because um, just sort of lying down and playing it on the Steam Deck and doing a bit of pootling and fishing is like the kind of thing Steam Deck's really good for. Like, I'm just going to poodle a bit on this resource game, you know, and, and while I'm doing something else or just while I'm sort of doing something mindlessly on the couch. Um, but it also wants your immersion, you know, it wants your kind of full absorption into it. And so for me, it's, it's like sort of, I can never really quite tell where it needs me to be. You know what I mean? Like, what level of comfortable do you want me to be? Cozy horror game. <laughs> yeah. And that is the, that is the interesting conundrum cozy of the cozy horror, horror game. Yeah. Right? Like... That's a really good oh, way of expressing it. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a knitted jumper on the body of a craven fisherman. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is also another similarity with strange horticulture. That is, mm. they, they both exist within the cozy horror genre, both kind of ruminative and very kind of relaxing games, but with a spooky soundtrack. I mean, and I guess this is like it's interesting. Maybe this is simply a genre, and it's got value in its own right, right? Like, is arguably. Like, you know, Scorn, for example, is trying desperately hard not to be cozy horror while also being missed. You know <laughs> <Yeah>. what I mean? <laughs> it was pretty relaxing, actually, Scorn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's valid, right? Like, maybe maybe we're attributing intent that they're not intending to follow through on, you know? Like, yeah. fascinating. I shall return to them. Good. Let me know. Let me know how you get on with the fishies. mm yeah, I imagine my boat will get bigger and faster, but so will the fish. That's my expectation. We'll see if it bans out. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Curse of the Golden Idol. You've been playing that as well. I have, yeah. I haven't finished it yet, but I do enjoy it quite a lot. I found that's... Uh, um, uh, I really like Curse of the Golden Idol. I appreciate it's been talked about on the pod before, has almost every, as has almost everything that I've played for the last couple of months. Um, but... Um, so if you're, if you're not aware, this is a um, sort of consciously old-school um puzzle adventure game um where you uh you look at you know a scene usually made up of several screens of i guess monkey island uh, one and two style you know kind of type vignettes um which represent a single moment frozen in time and you can browse around those and and hoover up lots of words and and sort of uh phrases that might be found in the environment in some way or in descriptions and then you're tasked to, it's an information game where you're tasked to assemble those into effectively solutions to puzzles. So effectively like identifying the characters in the scene, identifying who has done what to whom um, and how the particular moment has come about. And over the course of many of these vignettes, you start to piece together a story about a golden idol. And it's a, you know, again, a kind of, you know, um, sort of cosmic horror adjacent sort of yarn set in i think regency england which is quite a fun 
setting for something like this. Um, and, um, and I like it a lot. Um, but I think I find it, um, the thing that I've liked the most about it is for me, it's like first and foremost, a, I would describe it as like, it's a, it's, it's first and foremost a puzzle game rather than like a story game or a horror experience. And to me, it tickles the same part of my brain that is, um, that is, feels compelled to try and show off if I go to an escape room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the part which is like engaging with the the story or the, you know, the kind of the, the setting for the puzzle, but also fundamentally engaging with the designer. Like, okay, what is, what is being placed here and what am I going to be, what am I going to be solving today? Is this puzzle going to be about place settings at a dinner? Is it going to be about the position of rooms in a house? Is it going to be about masks or costumes or something else, right? Like those sorts of like, what are the mechanics? And then let me at them. And so I actually sort of whipped through the first half of it in about an hour and a half. And it was great, like just sort of speed running it. But um, like, um, but I do really like it. And I, I think the, I think it's presentation's really fun and the, um and the sort of um also a great a great rendering of particularly kind of uh grotesque british faces oh yeah i think in fact that's probably the last game that i uh, described the caricatures in it with the same effusiveness as i just did yeah uh superb noses absolutely yeah um and and that's and that's actually nice because it's actually important that your ability to recognize different characters in different circumstances is a, is a, is part of the puzzle solving and it's kind of cool that they are information in that sense as well a nose is information that's a true. nose is information that's is true um but yes i like it a great deal did you did you enjoy it much Oh, I, I thought it was superb. Yeah, I really had a great time with it. I can't remember much about it now, so I, I can't, <laughs> read, can't really talk. I do remember it having, it like curtailing the possibility space of the, the, the words you're putting in by having phrases in the in the screen where you're sort of judged upon mm. your um, understanding of a scene. And so instead of, uh, you know, it, it being quite as open as um, Oberdin, it, it curtailed the possibilities of the exact nouns that you were looking for by having a phrase with blanks in it. And I, I thought that was obviously both limiting the, the, the range of possibilities in a helpful way to the player, um, but also allowed it to do more inventive and expressive things in the kinds of scenarios it's proposing, because then it could ask you a specific question about them. Um, yeah. Whereas if it was completely open, it would have to be in some ways more predictable in the kinds of questions that it would ask you in order not to just completely bamboozle uh, a player with possibility. Um, so I thought it was really well judged in that respect. Yeah, it's. I, I think the you know um, it's brutable in some ways in some moments, but like mm. you know, and it was a reasonable thing. I think it does a good job of those sentence structures where you start to pass them, or the ways it kind of mixes things up with words that can go multiple places and so on, or or fields that can be filled with multiple kinds of words kind of adds grammar as a fun extra game um, to play on top of it. I think, so I'm someone who does a lot of crosswords <laughs> and like it sort of has that element to it as well, right? Learning, learning how the clue setter thinks is mm. part of playing it. And that's what I kind of mean by the, um, you know, you know, teacher's pet in a escape room mentality, <laughs> right? Is like the person who desperately wants to told, be told that you set a good time when your team emerges from the escape room, even though they say that to everybody. Um, 
you know, uh, <laughs> that that sort of pays off, I think. But yeah, I, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, Hack Mode years ago, we put a similar mechanic into that game and it's, it's, it's a tricky balance to get right. And I think they get it really right. Like how much to give in the clue, in the structure of the clue versus how much to kind of leave um, up to interpretation and, and how that's weighted. And the fact that, and I think also that like those sorts of like detail, both detailed dense but very readable sort of 90s pixel art backgrounds are actually a really good way of conveying that kind of information. The the thing I found, we're talking about Oberdin a lot today, but the reason I found Oberdin a really compelling but also not an entirely pleasant experience was because I think it's I think its visual style is talking about like retro visual styles kind of necessary for the kind of game it is and definitely very atmospheric but also just from at least to my eyes very hard to read just very hard to read and um that sort of forced me to play it in this sort of painstaking way that ultimately i found quite unpleasant as kind of atmospheric not not unintentionally so but like it was hard going and Whereas this I find quite breezy because of the whack fact that like I can quink quickly shake down the environment for all the keywords I need and then just look at the details and try and tell myself the story. And I find that quite pleasant. Perspective is also a factor there. Being shown mm. being shown the scenes as 2D scenes that take up the whole screen rather than forcing you into that, you know, first person perspective where you can get lost. Perspective's a really big part of it as well, actually. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's very good at guiding you. It uh, is. Without really needing to guide you at all, in fact. It removes the need to guide you, <laughs> I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's something very comfortable about that. A bit like, um, I mean, to be honest, one thing is really, it is also a effectively like an advanced hidden object game, to yeah. be honest, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not quite as simple as just like a, an iPad hidden object, search him up. But, you know, talking about fishing games and all those sort of things, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, that coziness there's there really is nothing wrong with it like the kind of the fun of gradually solving a puzzle doesn't have to be about difficulty all the time mm. and i find that quite uh yeah it's it's a it's a soothing experience and i think it's a worthwhile thing for a puzzle game to be basically mm. Mm. can i on while we were on the subject of earlier we were on the subject of efficiency can i can i tell you about probably one of the worst things i've done to another human being in a game. Oh God, yes. <laughs> I thought this would pique your interest. It's about efficiency in the sense that I don't think, I feel, I'm going to feel quite bad telling this story, but I think I really have meaningfully wasted someone else's time in a way that is impossible to ever apologize for. And I'm <laughs> oh deeply proud of myself. <laughs> and so, so the last time I was on the podcast was back in January and I, told jamie about my uh marvel snap addiction and uh that has remained i still play it quite a bit um i like it quite a lot i've fallen down a hole with it a little bit it is something to do it's very compelling um it's been talked about on the podcast a couple of times now so I'll, I'll explain the mechanics briefly but that's not really the point of the story um but uh are you familiar with how it works marshall I, I mean, I know the basics, I think. Sure. So very basic three-lane strategy game, uh, huge pile of cards and rules that overlap each other, rules for the lanes themselves, and each, uh, you know, but a very short-form card battler by some of the same people who made Hearthstone, where you are competing over the course of six turns, so really six cards, to 
achieve a maximum power score in two out of three lanes. And these games are very, very quick. They can be over in 45 seconds to a minute if if the turns are played quickly. And, you know, the, it certainly has its sort of balance issues and, and, and ups and downs and so on. But I think as a short form, quick fire, just fucking make some decisions about some game mechanics and then stop game. It's great, really. Like you can, you know, I could ramble on about its business model and the way it kind of pulls you in and doesn't and so on and the grindiness at the higher levels and but that's not the point. I think this is the sort of thing that most good deck building games where you kind of, at some point, you make a decision to either really care about winning or make your own fun, right? Just enjoy the mechanics for their own sake. I'm really happy to say that I have completed Marvel Snap now. For You've me. completed it. I've completed it. You've I've comple- played everybody who has played it. Yes. And I don't say that because I have hit the highest rank because I, I can't get past Diamond. But... I have, I have, I think, I don't think it is possible to waste someone else's time more than I have now wasted their time. <laughs> and so... How did, how did you achieve this? I need to tell you that. I've been waiting to tell the story for a while. I wanted to be on the podcast to do this, this to waste your time as well. Ha <laughs> um, <laughs> It's me, the time vampire. Um, the, um, no, so basically... I figured something out a while ago that I realized I had to do it, but it required very specific circumstances. So um, Marvel Snap, as I've said, is a game where the game is over in like, you know, 45 seconds to a minute most of the time, maybe even less. Um, And, you know, because of this, no, you know, you know, like it's, it's just quick decisions, quick resolutions and so on. And, um, but they've put a lot of work into the presentation. So cards have, you know, um, like the mind-blowing effects, but there'll be animations and effects for the reveal of cards, certain abilities, and so on. Now, um, many of uh, many cards fall into one of two categories. They either have an on-reveal effect or an ongoing effect. It's kind of self-explanatory. An ongoing effect persists for as long as that card is in the lane, and it might affect its own lane or the entire board, whatever. An on-reveal effect triggers when the card is revealed. Right. Very simple, right? Um and often those on reveal effects do have a, a kind of little animation. Sometimes they're like pretty spectacular, like some of the big ones, like, you know, destroying a lane or something like that. Um, and sometimes it's just a silly little animation. Um, but um, normally, you know, they you play the card, they do their thing, and then that's that done. However, uh, one of the longer of these animations I realized was the Silver Surfer. When you play the Silver Surfer, the Silver Surfer uh, costs three power, so he can be played on turn three or later. And he, you place him, he is revealed. He flies around the entire board and on his little surfboard, and he adds two power to every three-cost card he passes on his little journey. That's what the Silver Surfer does. Now, it's really important that he both has a bullshit animation and costs three power or less. Okay. Um, so... Um, there are other cards that interact with the principle of an unreveal card. Uh, Wong is is one of these. Uh, if Wong is in a lane, he has an ongoing effect which causes unreveal effects to trigger twice rather than oh, once. I um, see. Right. <clears throat> and I started to see a little pattern. I was playing with this. And then there are certain things you can do. Um, Mystique, the the X, uh, X-Man, X-Man character who, can, who turns into other people, uh, if you play her, she copies the, the ability of 
if if you're the last card you played before her had an ongoing ability, she copies it. Um, so that it's possible to have Wong and Mystique for two lots of two. And then uh, there is uh, Odin, for example. If you play Odin to Eleni's very expensive card, it costs six. He triggers the on-reveal abilities of any other cards in the lane he's in to happen again. Um, now, uh, there is also, and then I started to play with this. There's a there's a location that also causes on-reveals on to happen twice. But there is also a location called Onslaught Citadel that causes all ongoing effects to be doubled. And I figured out, as probably many people have, that this basically creates a mathematical cap for how many times an ongoing uh, an unreveal effect can happen and in in by default it's 16 um oh because um you know if you play wong then mystique then odin odin will trigger four times two twice each for the other two and then any one that Odin triggers will trigger four times. So it's four times four, 16. However, in Onslaught Citadel, it is possible to get that to 64 times because <laughs> Onslaught Citadel doubles Wong and Mystique. So Odin triggers eight times, triggering both Wong and Mystique to trigger four times each, which would then cause whatever card is being triggered to trigger eight times per Odin, which is eight times eight, so 64. Um and then, so basically, this can only happen mathematically with a card that has a cost of three or lower because of the sequencing when you have to play things. And that means it requires Onslaught Citadel to be one of the first um, things to trigger. So I just realized that um, you could do this with Silver Surfer because he costs three. The very funny thing about this is he only he buffs three cost cards other than himself. So the only thing he can possibly buff is Mystique, who's in the same lane as him. Anyway, um, I made this deck that I called Endless Surfering. And then <laughs> I was like, this is never going to actually happen, right? Like, because it's just, you need, because also, bear in mind, you need those cards in your hand, right? Like, out of everything else in your deck, you need those cards to happen. And then I literally had this deck for about, like, a game. And I was, like, I was drinking a coffee and eating a bacon roll in a covered market in Bath. And suddenly... I see that I start the game with like three out of the four cards in my hand and Onslaught Citadel is the first location. And I'm like, could it, could it happen? I'm so excited. I have to Google um, how to screen record um, my iPhone. <laughs> I do have a video of this. And I'm like, the pieces all fall into place. And there's a weird thing about the lane. I could talk about the exact game setup, but basically neither of us play a card to the furthest lane. It's important that one remain neutral. And then there's like a scrap over the other two. It's a back and forth. And like I initially play the Silver Surfer. He doesn't buff anybody. And then I we get to the end of that game. And um, <laughs> this poor person, wherever they were in the world, could have been on the poo. They could be having a poo. They could have been on the bus. They could have been playing that one last game before they were going to get on with whatever they were going to get on with. Um, and it all came it all happened. I, I, I did it. I did the thing that I was convinced I was going to try and do for the entire time. That was going to be my end game for Marvel Snap. And guess what, Marsh? The Silver Surfer flew around the screen for three minutes and 45 <laughs> seconds without stopping. He just kept going. He just kept. He gets up. He flies around. He stops. He comes back. He gets up. He does it again. He does that eight times. Then Odin triggers again. And he just keeps fucking going. <laughs> And 
because this game is intended to be played and enjoyed in like, you know, 45 second mini matches, there's no way to quit. <laughs> there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do other than emote. And and so at a certain point, I just kept doing the little thumbs up emote as the Silver Surfer kept fucking going forever. It was fucking incredible. It was honestly one of the best things I've ever done in a game. <laughs> and I should apologize, but I won't. Um, I, I, I've, got a, I've got a sped up video, which I might be able to try and find some way to get into the show notes. Because it is just, a, I mean, I sped it up by four times so that it only takes a minute of the Silver Surfer just fucking going and going and going and going. Since then, I have actually got a new mission now and I'm still playing the game because they've added a new card called hit monkey who costs four and uh his on reveal effect is he gains two power for every other card played that turn so it's utterly pointless to trigger him at the end of the game really kinda but when he triggers he fires guns and bananas everywhere and goes ooh ooh ah ah and like, <laughs> it is hypothetically impossible it's hypothetically possible for me to force someone else to listen to that 64 times over the course of i think that one would probably only take about two minutes to get through because it is like yeah probably about two and a half minutes of him going ooh ah, but hypothetically i could do that to another human being <laughs> what would you call game. that deck um it's it's currently called it is currently called monkey business but i do need to come up with another <laughs> name for it can your opponent uh, see the name of your deck they can't, but I wish you could reveal them at the end. <laughs> like that would be such a. I really wish I could reveal the end, the name of the deck. <laughs> um, but no, um, I, I think about it a lot. Like who that? Who, who was that person that I wasted? Like I mean, mm. yeah, just maybe three and a half minutes uh, and never getting back. Somebody in the, in the just taking a break from the incredibly tricky brain surgery they were conducting. I really could have just just thoroughly ruined a day. You know what I mean? Someone <laughs> just sat down like they've had a really shit morning. They're like, you know what? I've got time for one edifying game of Marvel Snap before I go back to what I'm doing. And then it's just the fucking Silver Surfer doing <laughs> donuts in their front garden for ever. Oh, I'm genuinely beautiful. proud of myself. Yeah, genuinely that is proud of myself. the most Loki-ish uh, manner of playing that game, I think. Yeah, right. It's the kind of satisfaction you can't get from uh, something like Slay the Spire. A better game, but the only but the only person's time you're allowed to thoroughly waste there is your own. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my... Uh, I didn't need to tell you that. that that's, that's great. My, that's my <laughs> Marvel Snap story. I love that you ruined somebody else's day. I thought you'd like it. Um, what else have we been playing, Marsh? I believe you have returned to a game that we once um, lost a huge amount of our own time to. <laughs> Talking about wasting other people's time as well. Gosh, the people who listen to that episode, um, two and a half, two, and, two hours, 45 minutes of mostly Star Wars, all caps, Jedi, title case, colon, fallen order, TM, superscript. Uh, the game, which is about to receive a sequel this week. Um, Indeed. And I, I found myself really looking forward to the sequel without having hmm. any recollection of why. <laughs> <laughs> I, and what's weird about it is that despite us recording an entire podcast about it, um, which I don't expect to be memorable considering the amount of alcohol we consumed, but I don't remember anything about the game apart from the fact it had a big rock cutting tool in it, <laughs> which is what? just a, a weird thing to stick with you, um, given all the other kind of spectacle in the game. No, it was it was the giant rock cutting tool that i remember um anyway i'm i'm now replaying it and I'm, I'm really enjoying it actually um more so i think than the first time around but i was trying to figure out why i had retained so few specifics of it 
beyond mm. like a generalized but sort of tentative goodwill towards it and a sort of non-specific enthusiasm for a sequel um and yeah it, I mean, it's not short of like kind of a, a visually amazing moments like there's there's huge you know crashed star destroyers that you enter and, and you know amazing ice planets and so forth and all, all the kinds of things that you would expect from uh, a huge mega budget star wars game but i think there's just there's a lot about it which is sort of this is interesting going this is going back sort of towards uh our, our discussion about dredge and the sort of the nature of activity and the kind of aesthetic that that generates and whether that can that is empowered because it's attached to something or, or not mm. attached to something i feel like um there's a lot of it which is just shy of finding like a definite purpose to it there's just mm. a sort of a, a reticence to like own any of the things that it does sort of mechanically or narratively and a lot of what it's doing is like cool and i'm like enjoying it in the moment and it's borrowed all these kind of uh, the structure and, and mechanisms from other games um, which i admire um but it always feels like the payoff the like, the reason that you would have done that cool thing it's just in the next room mm. and it isn't quite ever but what is in the next room is a fucking poncho <laughs> 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 um but like I mean, you you were a lot more um, into. So I went back and listened to a bit of the the, the previous car crash podcast <laughs> we did about this, um, and you were a lot more enthusiastic about it than I was. I don't think um, I was actually. I actually felt that negatively about it when I was playing it the last time. But for some reason, out of you know sheer perversity, I decided to to take a stronger line against it when we were discussing <laughs> it than I actually felt. Um, but I think this has been thrown into some kind of relief as well by the, the recent Star Wars series that have attempted with varying levels of effectiveness to sort of insert themselves within an existing canon. And that's like mm. the, the, the perennial problem, particularly with the Star Wars games, but also with, for example, the Obi-Wan TV series, is that it has to create all of this drama within this tiny interstitial space without it actually affecting anything outside of that like it's the, like yeah. like raccoons living inside a wall cavity trying to sneak into your kitchen to eat your biscuits at night and like but also they replace the biscuits just to make sure that you never actually <laughs> realized they were there yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, but, yeah, and i don't think they do a bad job of it in this game like i i it's it's a compelling story i actually like the characters and so forth but they are but you can't. You can tell that they're tied down. Yeah. At the same time, not only they're tied down, but they're trying to do something on a much grander scale than is premised by uh, Andor, for example, the TV series Andor. And yet, ironically, despite Andor being quite a low-key and intimate story of rebellion, that actually does tie into the plot of the movies in a very significant way, or it will do. And this game never will. You're like, <laughs> despite it being about right. bringing back the Jedi Order, which you would think would have some significance. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go. Oh, well, I'm just going to carry on rambling. But if you have, <laughs> if you feel anything about things, please do say. Oh, I mean, me feel things about Star Wars. No, I mean, I, was, I think, I, and honestly, I just feel like most Star Wars for the last couple of years had to make a choice about whether to be trapped like that. And because I, I feel like it is a choice, you know what I mean? And like, I don't, it doesn't surprise me that sort of, uh, obviously it's official material, but stuff on the periphery, like games is a little bit sandwiched in it, but also a little bit freer to go its own direction in some ways because mm. of the medium. Um, I really, you know, for what it's worth, I, I really do feel like the, um, you know, the, 
the TV shows are in a very strange place where like Andor kind of came along and was quietly one of the best bits of TV sci-fi in years mm. and genuinely great on its own merits. And everything else is absolute trash, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, you know, both the most recent season of Mandalorian, Boba Fett, Obi-Wan are all like, they're not god awful, but there's no excuse for them being as bad as they are, in my mm. opinion. And like, that's a sort of, um, but part of that, uh, you know, and maybe that's controversial, maybe it's not, but part of that is because they are contorted into this, can't, you know, sort of, um, contorted into this sort of service to a, a greater, you know, story, I suppose, or a bigger universe, or in, in Mandalorian's case, particularly the kind of the decisions of the sequel movies. Um, and yeah, I think maybe I just lost my patience for that completely. Whereas I think um, where, the, where they are successful to return to Fallen Order, it's when they can kind of deliver just like a moment of spectacle or atmosphere to return to that word that it just sort of places you in that setting for a moment and kind of captures something of its kind of fantasy, its core fantasy. And I think Fallen Order is kind of like good for that. Like even as it sort of ties itself in knots a little bit, trying to tell something of kind of grand scale when it's not really allowed to mm. by the terms of the broader story, it's still using that to make sure that you have an excuse to go to a cool place and see a big thing, which mm. is really like, you know, a fundamental promise of those stories that ironically they've struggled with a bit more recently when everything is being filmed in front of a volume screen. Yeah. 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 But I wonder if that just that sort of, uh, that detaching, that detachment from some larger purpose is what makes it feel immemorable in some way, or is what helped it slip out of my memory. I, th I think it's true, like mechanically as well. Like, so it's structured around these very non-linear levels, or at least appear non-linear levels, which have something of like the Dark Souls structure of shortcutting back to spawn points, and something of like the Metroidvania structure of ability gating parts of the environment. So actually, your route through them are is at times quite linear but it's it nonetheless often requires a lot of crisscrossing and backtracking and that's no no bad thing at all like i i think the first time we discussed it you said that it, it, it sort of if you were to play an uncharted now you'd almost do it on autopilot whereas that mm -hmm. that level of that kind of breadth of freedom to the degree that it offers you it helped jog you out of like just comfortable triple a cinematic adventure autopilot setting and it does do that and it's and i think that is a to its credit and a real merit of the game but then i don't know that it does like anything else with that like what is what is the purpose of all that crisscrossing and backtracking apart from that kind of that momentary sensation or of uh jostling you into some form of alertness about your environment like it's 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 a really nice texture almost it's like mm. a pleasant thing to play but it never really makes a case for why you are doing that structurally and it often abandons it as well because it railroads you then with cutscenes or like non-consensually triggered diversions and it's i was, I was going to say it was, it's, it's it's a sort of pose but it's not it's, it's not a pose in the sense that it's it, i don't feel like it's insincere or fake in any way yeah i think it's intentional i think it's intentionally there for flavor but it's it is a flavor and it's not the real thing <laughs> you know what i mean and maybe that and, and like i think that's sometimes enough and i think that can be your goal as a game designer like i remember a call of duty game a few years back uh i don't remember the name of it I, it's the one set in the future where you're basically robocop and kevin spacey is your evil daddy in 
Infinite Warfare? Could have been that one. Uh, but anyway, it had all these like upgrade systems, super soldier upgrade systems that they perform different um, attacks amongst other things. And there were loads of them. And it had a really complicated skill tree, but they essentially gravitated around two or three very distinct mechanical functions. Like some would let you deal damage directly. Others would distract enemies and another set would enhance your, your traversal abilities, I think. But instead of being categorized like that and having oh three different things you can do there were loads of them and they were subdivided into more baffling categories like technology and cyber warfare and stuff like that that didn't actually relate to their function which was one of those three functions all the time right and uh like there's there's a skill that blasted enemies with some kind of sonic weapon that caused people to puke up their diaphragms and then there's another skill which like unleashes a swarm of robotic bees but both of those are essentially the same yeah. Because they paralyze or distract a number of enemies while you murder them. Uh, that's all they do. And I remember making a video for for Rock, Paper, Shotgun where I did some very uh, uh, ill-advised impromptu redesign of this and simplified it all down, boiled it all down, rationalized the button mapping, made it fewer powers, made them more kind of dramatically distinct. I'm like, good job. What a great game designer. What a great armchair game designer I am. And then <laughs> and then uh, Paul Kilduff-Taylor uh, of, of Mode 7 uh, responded to this on Twitter very cleverly and suggested that like the actual mechanical effect of all these skills was not the goal. <laughs> the The goal was the aesthetic of having a lot of upgrades. And yeah. while I was looking at it going, yeah, this is inefficient system design. You know, you don't need bees and puke. Pick one, bees or puke. Most people were just, <laughs> were just excited by the feeling of having like a complex skill tree and the superficiality of it just didn't matter at all. Mm. But, but then again... I can barely remember that game's existence. And it's possibly only because I made a video about it and then got a, a taught a lesson on Twitter <laughs> that I remember it at all. And I wonder whether that that lack of true synergy is what makes it immemorable. And I wonder if that's also what makes elements of Fallen Order harder to recall. Like, why am I going the here or there? And the game's saying you know, not incorrectly, don't worry, it doesn't matter, just enjoy the feeling of being in this open space with these little loopbacks and not very secret secrets that will reward you with different color ponchos. If you miss something, chill, you know, it's, it probably it probably was just a different kind of colored metal for your lightsaber grip <laughs> that you can't even see in game. Don't worry about it, it's fine. But also, by the same token, that lack of purposefulness means that when the f feeling generated by that structure has passed, you're not left with anything to, to hold on to. Yeah. Except, you know, in a literal sense of a lightsaber grip. But, you know, I don't remember that years later. Can I risk saying something really wank? Oh, please. I'm going to, this is a danger, but if, so you maybe, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a really interesting problem because initially when you were like enjoying the flavor of, of you know, that sort of, lightly non-linear kind of element to the game or something it was actually making me think more about texture so this is this is wanky statement number one mm. and and for me i was like is it interesting that there's like a mismatch between the texture and the flavor is this a game that is crunchy like a biscuit but tastes like yogurt like what is like mm. what's the you know like is that anything and, and then what i realized as you were talking about call of duty was no it's not um but <laughs> <laughs> um 
But what I'm thinking about, what, where that took me, and I think this is kind of interesting, is like, you don't, don't remember Bill's. Like, I don't really remember Fallen Order either, and I did like it. Um, and things like the, the superficial pleasures of like an upgrade tree for its own sake and those sorts of things is I, my, this is a guess. This is the, the nature and trajectory of the wank is things tend to be more memorable if they have coherently taught you something. And what, you know, talking about mismatch of flavor and texture would be one way of framing it. The other would be, um, the ga- those games sort of teach you, uh, two st- they have you managing two strands of information that are irrelevant to one another right so your the things you learn in order to traverse the environment and get all of the secrets are uh, is one strand of information with a low return right like the return is a poncho or a copper lightsaber hilt or whatever it is then the other thread is the story of the game which is the other reason you might be invested uh, think of these as like reasons to invest and things you need to learn to pursue those investments. One is I want a new poncho. I'm going to learn this sort of Dark Souls light navigation, level navigation. The other is um, I want to find out what happens to these characters. So I will kind of pursue that. But they're completely separate from one another. I think the game will put you on rails for a while to tell the story or launch you into a cutscene, and all those things you said. And so the game is not teaching you anything coherent so your intellectual engagement with it is sort of like it's fine it's enjoyable at surface level but it's probably not like i don't know how the memory works i'm not going to claim to but it's like you're not it's not it's not coming together to a point Mm. right like if you think of like most successful teaching math matches the kind of methodology to the outcome in some way that gathers towards a certain point whether that's a new skill or a language or whatever it is right like you're not learning that the the comparison and is the inevitable comparison is how you know it's like um and that is what i would put that down to in the fallen orders case is it's because it's the marriage of a fairly traditional um triple a storytelling method you know levels followed by really you know uh, high production value cutscenes and so on uh with a little bit of that's happening under the player's control through the levels themselves married to an actually surprisingly non-linear-ish exploratory gameplay that isn't very good at telling that kind of story. And neither of them suit the other. Whereas if you look at how From Software tells stories with those methods, they pretty much exclusively tell stories about worlds where almost every aspect of that world and how it works and how the function, the functional sort of metaphysical logic of it is unknown to you at the point where the game begins. And the story and the beats of the story are highly tied into your increasing knowledge of how those worlds work and the way you explore those worlds is designed to teach you how those worlds work. So it's all kind of, it mm. all feeds into itself. You, you're, yeah. you're the, the greater mastery with which you explore those environments increases the depth of your understanding of the themes of the story, which allow you to kind of pull more out of the game with every subsequent run. It's impossible to apply that to a Star Wars game because, I mean, it would be incredible, well, it would be incredibly bold of them to have a man, you know, to try and make a Star Wars game where every aspect of the universe is unknown to you, the player. That's kind of impossible, right? Force mm. is going to be the force. You know, there's, you know, you could have a character who'd never heard of those things, but you, the player is going to have some idea how the setting works. And so the, you know, the, the stuff it's teaching you is, uh, in terms of how to navigate the world and so on, it's just a completely different thread to the thing it's teaching you from a kind of man, you know import to the overall Star Wars universe point of view or the story of these particular characters. Mm. And so it doesn't really surprise me that 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 time isn't like intellect doesn't have much staying power intellectually over time, right? Whereas like you know I feel like if I think about the From Software games that I have really loved over the years, like Bloodborne or something like that, 
the mechanics of that universe and the mechanics of the game and even the layout of the world is sort of like indelibly intertwined with one another in my head. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all the mechanics of certain bosses versus certain points, pop points in the story, even if it's just a kind of like a nod from one to the other, those are all kind of connected to the same body of learning. Um, I don't know if that's total wank or not. No, no, I think that's exactly, that's exactly true. And I think the thing is, but I'm not sure you couldn't achieve that with a Star Wars game. Obviously, you're right that you you can't go at it tabula rasa. But I mean, a lot of the places that, um, uh, (laughs) whatever the main character's name is, is exploring. Cal Kestis. Cal Kestis. I got the Cal part. But, um, you know, the places he's exploring are unknown to him, um, even if the larger world is known. And I feel like you could do more of the stuff. I, th- I think the problem is that is I like I, I in Dark Souls is a good comparison because not only do I remember individual inventory items I picked up in that game, but I remember exactly where they were, how difficult it was to get to them, and what they meant in the larger context. Because those instead of just being like uh, you know a, a different colored poncho, they are an item which changes the way you play, could possibly be uh, you know a major boon. In, in increasing your stats in certain regards, they come with a story which explains something about the wider world, and their placement is not only the the end of some sort of puzzle often, but their placement also describes how they got to be there or raises the question of how they got to be there. All of this stuff feeds back and connects mm. and reinforces itself. Uh, you know. You're you're enhancing your ability by finding these things. You're answering questions about the universe, and you're asking new ones. And none of that happens when it's just different colored lightsaber grip in a box. And yeah. I think that means that there's you don't remember anything about how you got there or, or why you did it um, because they are just divorced from those things. And I remember I think there was, you did raise an interesting argument in the defense of that the last time we spoke about this because you you were saying. That the the fact that it didn't induce like agonizing FOMO in you was a real relief. <laughs> yeah, I love the absence of pain. <laughs> yeah, huge but, fan. <laughs> but I do wonder if if they've gone too far in the other direction by by saying we won't want to inflict FOMO on players. They've basically made it immemorable <laughs> in certain <laughs> regards. Yeah, I mean, I will say this. Like, I, I remember enjoying it, I think. I have no memory of recording that podcast, possibly because of the the, the liquid element. But, like, um, but yeah, like, I am also sort of, like, vaguely looking forward to the new one with no one, no idea when I'll, when I'll actually play it. So, you know, I think I do, I do still encounter the feeling of, like, it's a relief when it's a game I can finish. You know what I mean? There is oh, that yeah. element of, like, oh, I love that there isn't too much to this. You know? Yeah. But that's not that's a I think that's um that is a response to a broader lack of time or attention, mm. not a quality that I would like want all games to have, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I comparing it to something like I mean obviously the from software is a good comparison, but I think honestly probably enduringly like I was trying to think about like what, what else was I playing around that time? Uh, and it's like I remember a lot of Sekiro. Mm. And Sekiro, I think, makes a, it's quite a valid comparison in a lot of ways, right? Like, it's also a kind of from software structure, but with more of an action game on top and so on. And, like, you know, there are many, I have very, very many vivid things come to mind when I think of Sekiro, including, like, boss mechanics and moments and stuff. And I don't remember everything, but I loved that game. And um, 
I, I rinsed Fallen Order, but I genuinely actually don't remember very much apart from like the ending and like um, other bits and bobs. So you are right that it hasn't stuck around. But I'd be interested to see if the new one changes that. It mm-hmm. might not need to, honestly. Um, well, that's look- the thing. I mean, it's a perfectly uh, valid uh, commerce to make games that are... I mean, they're not making uh, stuff to outlive people and echo down the centuries are they they're making products which they have to hit a certain threshold to make bank and that's it to some degree with that in mind that so what you mentioned that you were looking forward to the new one is there a particular mm-hmm. given that given that you were a little colder on formal originally why what do you think prompted that curiosity in the new one i really don't remember i don't know i have no idea why <laughs> i don't even remember why you're looking forward to it. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I suppose one of the reasons that I've gone back to it is that they, I, I saw a headline somewhere which said that the new game begins with you as a fully empowered Jedi without removing any of the abilities that you learned in the previous game. Um, so I figured I should probably go back and replay the previous game so that I can come to the new one without being, you know, lost. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know why. I mean, I, I, I know now having replayed it that I, I am invested enough in the characters and also the the action of play is very satisfying. Like the the combination of powers, the combat in the game, I think is really nicely designed and rewarding. Uh, so for that reason, I will play the next one as well. The larger interest that I have in it, I have no idea in what in what that is rooted. Really. Fascinating, fascinating. <laughs> quite quite a big run of like um, AAA games in the next couple of months. Really, like mm. it does feel like the kind of whatever that. I don't know if that even has been a drought. Really, maybe I felt mm. it, but like it's some what? sort of combination of like this into Spider Man, Diablo, Street Fighter, etc. Right, all the games that presumably were delayed because of COVID. Yeah, right. They're all they're all going to come out in the next year and a half, two years, and that, that's it's going to be an interesting time. Yeah, because Fallen Order was twenty nineteen, right? That's probably the other reason I don't remember it. Mm, yes, maybe. I don't know. It sounded Sounds like right. we were in person because we were obviously sharing rum. So <laughs> I don't know whether that dates it. Yeah, presumably before uh, before the year in which we were uh, mm. incarcerated. Anyway, maybe uh, if it comes to Steam. Uh, which it might do, the sequel, I mean. Uh, I might be able to tell you how it fares next week or the week after. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah. That'd be exciting. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That means it sounds non-committal as it was. Sorry, that was... <laughs> I think I've already forgotten what it was we were talking about. I don't know. I don't know. Ugh. <sighs> Well, speaking of, uh, what was I? Am I? <laughs> What's going on? Should we stop? Yeah, that's probably wise, isn't it? Well, we will. We will find out certainly if the game uh, does come to Steam. That's probably the information that could be found. Be <laughs> um, we will find out if you played it and what you thought about it. Perhaps in the future. Who knows? Based on our recent track record with getting pods out when we say we're going to get them out. Anything is possible. The full gamut of possibilities from yes all the way to no. Um, (laughs) But in the meantime, this is or has been all of the pod that we've done. And that's it. Um, If you'd like (laughs) like to find more podcasts like this one and better, you can find them 
on crateandcrowbar.com. You can also find them on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash crowbar. Find the podcast on Twitter at crowbar. Uh, and uh, you'll find a link to our Discord community on our website. Uh, that's to repeat, CreightonCrowbar.com. If you wish to find us individually, I'm on Twitter at C Thurston. We don't usually do this anymore, but I guess I do use it to plug books now, so I'll just say it. Uh, C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Uh, Marsh. Yeah. Yep, indeed. Uh, teeth. You got them. I got them. You can have them too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a book I made. You can back it on Kickstarter if you want, but you don't have to. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's plugged himself to sleep. That's it. Is that everything we normally say? I forgot. Oh, no, I forgot something important. Thank you, as ever, to our Patreon supporters um, who fund... All of these podcasts we actually do and don't fund the ones we don't, crucially, crucially. Thank you sincerely from us uh, for, for your continued support. I think that's it, isn't it? I'm going so. to go now and think about what I've done. <laughs> Good night, Chris. Good night, Marsh.